All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We got a terrific Wednesday morning show for you, including the countdown to back to school. Teachers, kids, and staff heading back to class next week. Let's check in now with the head of the teachers union. Terry Mooring is the president of the BC Teachers Federation. I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Terry, thank you for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Good morning to you. Okay, school's set to reopen next week. You've been critical of the government's back to school plan. Where are we at right now? I mean, we're a few days away from the start of the new school year. Are you encouraging teachers to show up for work next week? And are you encouraging parents, it's okay, send your kids to school? We're continuing to work, you know, on the work groups and the steering committee uh, with government. uh, And we're we're also hoping that some changes will be made. Um, In particular, we're hoping that there's more clarity around the remote option that is offered to families uh, in school districts. Um, because, uh, you, you know, what, what we think needs to happen is that it needs to be made clear that a remote option is available across the entire province, regardless of the school district, and that um, it allows families to maintain their child's spot at the school. And so I know that that right now is hit and miss around the province, and so yeah. that's some of the clarity that we're looking for. Okay, there's different plans, I guess, in different school districts, but I, I guess what I want to know is, are, are parents, are you confident parents, it's, it's okay for parents to send their kids to school next week? week and they will be safe. Well, you know, obviously we're still trying to make changes to the plan that involve some preventative measures. And so the learning group concept that's employed in school districts right now is about contact tracing. And so we're still really looking for uh, reduction in classroom density. We think that can be um, gained by uh, offering the remote option and hiring additional teachers, quite frankly. Um, And we're also looking for a more robust mask policy. So those are the the kinds of things that we would like to see in place. I do anticipate that parents will be sending their children to school with masks. We're certainly seeing that in some of the other jurisdictions that have begun school already. Um, And we'd like to see it more clear from government in terms of, uh, you know, expecting kids from 10 years old and up to wear masks. That's what we're hoping for. Okay, I suggest to you those are some pretty major changes you're looking for at the sort of the last minute that I I anticipate probably will not be in place. I don't think we're going to see significantly smaller classes. I don't think there's time to hire more teachers here just a few days away from from the start of this school year. So what if these changes are not put in place? Are you still encouraging teachers to show up for work and, and parents to send their kids to class? So what um, our districts are quite used to doing is hiring additional teachers at the end of August and beginning of September. And so that's commonly done across the province. And so we think there is time and and we're still pushing for those changes. We've been pushing for them for a while now. Uh, We haven't given up. Uh, There's still time and there's money. So there's $242 million from the federal government. Uh, that needs to be dispersed to school districts. We hope that happens sooner rather than later. And we hope it comes with some directions around how it's to be used, and one of them being uh, hiring additional teachers. We still have the issue also of teachers teaching on call having to uh, work across multiple learning groups. These are some of the issues that still need to be resolved, Uh, and so there's still work to do. Uh, There is time and there's money to do it. Okay, but can, do you rule out job action, though? I mean, will teachers be in class next week? Can you, can you assure parents there won't be any job action by teachers? So what, you know, what we're doing is working within the system to affect those changes. Right. Um, we have been working cooperatively with government the whole time. So we've had 25 teachers on work groups. We've been trying to affect those changes. Uh, we're still having those conversations, both you know, politically and within those working groups. And so we're still we're still working on it, Mike. Uh, the, our hey, work what, is not done my, yet. What about my question, though? No job action by teachers, right? You guys are going to show up to work. 
Well, school will start on September 8th. Uh, there's yeah. an orientation week uh, that's been established, so teachers will be receiving health and safety orientation training on September 8th and 9th. Um, and, you know, districts I know are pl- hopefully planning with uh, local unions around what those other two days will look like in terms of students, um, you know, returning to school. There's I, thought, I, thought kids, to do that carefully. I thought kids were supposed to go back to school on Thursday next week. That's that's what I'm that's what I'm saying. So right, and that's going to ha- so days are Tuesday, Wednesday are teachers receiving health and safety orientation training yeah. and service and that sort of thing, and then Thursday, Friday are the days that uh, are as part of the orientation week that students will be invited right. back. Right. Is this all going to unfold according to plan in your mind, or are there still problems that could throw a wrench into the works here? I'm just, I'm just trying to figure out like is is this actually going to happen next week, and are you guys on board with it to make it happen? Well, what we're on board with, Mike, is, is still continuing to work on improving some of those measures that we see as necessary. Yeah, but what so, if you don't get everything you want? Are you still going to go to show up at, well, for work? What what I anticipate, again, is that you know teachers have access to um, masks, to face shields. I expect them to be wearing them. You know, we're, we're um, ho- you know we're hoping that we're returning to school under you know as good a circumstances as possible. What we're yeah. concerned about is that you know if there is uh, an outbreak somewhere, and and chances are there will be because there has been in other jurisdictions. We need to be able to tell our students and families of our students that we've tried everything we can to make schools as safe as we can possibly make them. And so it's perplexing why, you know, we aren't putting some of those uh, additional preventative measures in place uh, to ensure that we can, you know, we can say those things. Okay, but the plan has been signed off by Dr. Bonnie Henry, the province's chief medical health officer, who's just a widely respected figure in our province now. And she says this is a good plan. This is a safe plan. What do you know that she doesn't know? I mean, you're not an epidemiologist. I'm not either. She's the expert. She's telling us it's okay. You're telling us that we should be worried. So we got received a health plan, and school districts yeah. have, have used that health plan to develop their own plans that have been reviewed by government. And those um, health and safety guidelines that are out, that uh, are ministry documents, are subject to change and have changed, in fact, um, already. And so they're, they're being updated as, as we speak. So those documents that are um, forwarded to districts, that districts are formulating their plans are, um, do change over time. And obviously, yeah. uh, as new information comes our way, it's responsible to make sure those changes happen. So I've not been told by anyone, uh, not from the public health office nor from the ministry, that any of that is set in stone that as we get additional information, and we are, research is continuing to happen, um, you know, that those documents and, and perhaps advice will change. We've certainly seen changes, perhaps not provincially, but federally. Uh, we have seen changes in mask policies and those sorts of things. So yeah. I, I expect that those uh, will continue to evolve as time goes on, and, and that's the responsible thing to do. do. So. Do you do you rule out taking any further actions if if you don't get everything you want at at this committee level? Like I'm I'm thinking about what's happening in Ontario right now, where the Ontario Teachers Union has gone to the provincial labor board there, saying that they believe the conditions are unsafe for teachers and kids in schools, and they're fighting it at the labor board. Do you rule out taking a, a similar step here in British Columbia and trying to take this in front of the BC Labor Relations Board? 
So we're, we're tracking what's happening in other jurisdictions really carefully, and we're in close contact with Ontario um, unions. You know, we certainly hope it doesn't come to that, and that's why we were heartened when government established the work groups in the first place that allowed 25 teachers to, you know, do this work. And so we're, we're still trying to work within the system here to affect that change, and we're certainly yeah. hoping that it doesn't come to the point where we have to go to the Labour Board. That you're, you're not really ruling that out, though. You're not, you're not ruling that out this morning. Though, right? Well, it would right. be un- it would be an unfortunate turn of events, um, but you know we'll we'll have to see how th- how things go. Talking to Terry Mooring, she's the president of the BC Teachers Federation. Back to school next week. You're very critical of that uh, government commercial with Dr. Bonnie Henry. A lot of people, I'm sure, have seen it now, where she is standing in front of a, a, gr- a, gr- a classroom of kids and talking about the need to wash your hands and be safe and potentially wear masks in schools when we get back to school next week. You guys have been critical of that ad, saying it's not realistic. She explained yesterday she's just trying to give a calming message and information to to kids as they need it as they go back to school. Are you still concerned about about that ad? Well, what we'd like to see, Mike, is uh, classrooms where students are able to physically distance, that have uh, sinks, that have running water. Uh, and those are the sorts of things that we're looking for in terms of, of the return to school. And so the reality is, after after decades of underfunding, is we have uh, classrooms without running water, without um, soap dispensers. We have um, windows that don't open or classrooms with no windows at all. We have lots of portables, you know, in in the province. And so what we'd like to see is, is what refle- is reflected in that ad ac- across the province. And so that's, that's what you know, does that mean? part Let's... of the feedback. Well, we'd like to see classrooms set up where students are able to space their desks out and physically distance. Um, and the other measures that we saw in the ad, we'd like to see them across the province. But we're not going to because we have lots of classrooms, as I say, without sinks, without running water. Um, what wow. is necessary in those situations is um, hand sanitizer. And, and we're going to see that in place in a lot of schools, in, in classrooms. We're going to see classrooms with 30 students students in them. Um, and where desks are not going to be able to be physically distanced. And so that that's the reality of what we're going to see. Yeah, right. So you mean, you're not going, you're not going to get what you want. Right? <laughs> well, that's what we'd like to see. So what we see reflected in the ad is, is what we've been asking to see in classrooms. Yeah, but okay, the, the teachers union have been very critical of the ad saying, well, it looks like it only shows six kids in a classroom. And this is unrealistic. You're not going to get a situation where classes are going to be reduced to just six kids. Right? I mean, that's just no, not real. That's what, not going to happen. What we're, you know, hoping for, and again, uh, I know the remote option being offered to families is, is happening in some districts and not others, and we find that very inequitable. So, you know, families do need the option of maintaining their child's space in their school and receiving that remote option if they choose to do so. And so that is one way to reduce classroom density is to allow those families that option that, again, the minister referred to uh, in his last announcement um, and it is present on ministry, the ministry website but not actually accessible to all families across the province. Yeah. And we're hearing from a lot of those families who are saying they're, they're having these conversations with their district and they're being told their only options are distributed learning and homeschooling. And so that, that's of concern to us. Last question for you, Terry. Are, is the union willing to be flexible here in this situation? I mean, you've been calling for smaller classes. You want the government to hire more teachers. Would you be willing to offer some sort of concession to make that happen, maybe take a temporary pay cut for teachers to free up funds? Well, there's $242 million available, Mike. 
And yeah, but that's so not that's that, not earmarked to hire more teachers, though. But it but it can be. There's no reason why it can't be because it's earmarked by the federal government to improve the safety of schools, and that's yeah. physical distancing is one of the primary measures that we use whenever we exit our homes to keep ourselves safe. And okay. so that there's no reason why that money shouldn't be used for that purpose, and that's certainly what okay. we're hoping it is used for. Okay, we're we're following it very closely, to say the least. Thank you for coming on the show today. Thanks so much, Mike. Uh, you got to read behind the headline, especially on a government news release. Quite often, what the government, all they want you to hear, all they want you to see is the headline. you got to go deeper than that. You've got to get into the fine print. you got to get into the behind-the-scenes details. Yesterday, I'm telling you, was a classic example of this. Here we've got these homeless camps that are getting bigger in Vancouver and in Victoria. The one in Vancouver, the Strathcona Park homeless camp, has got 400 tents there. This is the biggest homeless encampment in Canada. They need action from the government here to do something about it. The government wants you to think they are doing something. This is what they did yesterday. Selena Robinson, the, the Minister of Housing, had an announcement, and I'm looking at the headlines around the Internet on this this morning. New supportive housing coming for homeless in Vancouver. One of the headlines I'm looking at now in a Google search. 450 new and temporary supportive housing units coming to Vancouver. Hundreds of homes for the homeless in Vancouver. These are the headlines the government wants you to read. They want you to see that. You got to dig deeper than that. And when you do, you find out that this is a joke because a lot of these homes are not going to be in place until next year. 100 of these homes are temporary. They won't be in place until next year. The other 350 homes are supposedly permanent. There's no timetable to build them. They have to do consultation. They have to do planning. They haven't even got it. They don't even know where they're going to put them. They got their headline, though. They got their headline saying the government's doing something about it. Meanwhile, you've got these neighborhoods struggling with these swelling homeless camps. And not just in Vancouver, not just at Strathcona Park, but in other cities in British Columbia as well, including in Victoria. Let's go there right now and speak to Janice Williams. She is a spokesperson for Save Beacon Hill Park. Janice, thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you for having me on. Good morning, Mike. I hope the weather there is as good as it is here because it's a pretty beautiful day. Very, very lovely day, but I know that in, in Beacon Hill Park, which is a famous park in Victoria, there are problems, and I know you're, you're deeply involved in that as an advocate for the neighborhood there. Can you tell me about what's happening in Beacon Hill Park in Victoria? Uh, well, it's, it's quite heartbreaking with respect to Beacon Hill Park. Um, months ago, uh, in June, a petition was started calling for the end of camping 24-7 in Beacon Hill Park um, be, because it's when you have 24-7 camping, it allows an entrenchment and, and there's a bunch of other uh, externalities that result when that happens, crime and disorder and all of that kind of stuff. And so a petition was started, 26,000 signatures, uh, letters, hundreds of letters have gone out. And it's been month after month of saying, please help our neighborhood. We've had constant reports of uh, improperly discarded needles, uh, public defecation and urination in the park, uh, general destruction of the park um, resources. Some of the damage has really been quite shocking yeah. uh and it, it's just been really frustrating what about that uh, school isn't there a, a school next to the park it's been had a bunch of windows smashed the other night 
There absolutely is. And yeah. that's South Park Elementary School. So yeah. it's a school that is K to five. So these are young, vulnerable children. And the parents um, there are very concerned about the safety of their kids returning to school, which is now less than 10 days away. And meanwhile, the response from the city has been kind of underwhelming in terms of reassuring them that, yes, their kids will be protected and they will be safe from improperly discarded needles and public disorder and things kids really shouldn't be around. Sadly, the windows have been broken now three times on that school, and it really is just an awful situation. Has has anyone been injured by any of those discarded needles in, in the park? Yes, uh, actually. Um, it was within the last two weeks that there was a senior citizen going for a walk in the park, uh, which everyone should be able to do uh, without fear. And this individual had stepped on a improperly discarded needle. Yeah. Okay. Beacon Hill Park, for people unfamiliar with Victoria, it's uh, very central in Victoria, close to the BC legislature. I guess it's kind of like Victoria's Stanley Park in a way, but much smaller, obviously, but, you know, an historic, picturesque, iconic park. And there's absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a there's a large tent encampment there. So uh, the, the, the Victoria City Hall the other day announced that there will be some parks where it will be off limits to set up an encampment and others you will be allowed to camp, including in Beacon Hill Park. So I know that was disappointing for you that the encampment there will continue according to City Hall. I noticed, though, that City Hall in Victoria shut down a a camp that was right outside their front door where there was a bunch of drug dealing going on, the, the police said the other day. Yes, so Centennial Square was shut down the other day, and what is distressing with that is it was shut down and people were directed to other public parks. So rather than looking at the solution that they've been relying on, which is using public parks to uh, provide 24-7 sheltering to those experiencing homelessness and going, wait, is this even an appropriate solution at all, or should we be considering alternatives um, for example, working with our community centers and halls to uh, establish shelters that, that people check in or right. even registering people and saying, okay, you can go there. We are only having two people there or five people there. We are going to engage with the neighborhood and provide them some recourse. If, if there is misbehavior, here's the rules. Right. And something that balances the rights and needs of those experiencing homelessness with the rights and needs of the neighborhood to have public safety. And I really do believe that public safety is a critical foundational thing that drives our ability to have vibrant communities that people want to be in. Right. Speaking to Janice Williams, she is with Save Beacon Hill Park in Victoria. There's a large encampment there, similar to the Strathcona Park uh, camp in Vancouver. So there's, this is going on in a lot of different places. Yesterday, as I mentioned off the top, Janice, there was an announcement by the BC government that they will they will start building more housing for the homeless, but not until next year. Like I said, you got to go beyond the headline. But have a listen to this. This is uh, the housing minister yesterday talking about these camps. This is uh, Selena Robinson. And, and that work is, is being undertaken now with BC Housing, taking a look at how, how do we um, get through the next number of months. We're certainly continuing to extend leases on some of the hotels that we've, that we've been leasing and looking at um, making sure that we have appropriate shelters for those that, uh, that need it most.
Okay, she's talking about shelter. She's talking about doing something, but I don't know. Things don't seem to get done. It seems like these camps are getting bigger. What are your thoughts? Well, and, and my, my thought is that we, we actually need much bolder action. I think we need to yeah. look at, at the resources that we're spending on this sector. Uh, look at all the service providers. I, I understand Vancouver has 200-plus service providers providing services to the homeless um, population. Uh, Victoria, similarly, we've got dozens of service providers, and I think it's time we really need to look at the system of services and that the province really needs to take the bull by the horns and manage it, similar to the healthcare system or the education system. We need high-quality information, and we need to do something a little more strategic. Uh, one of the problems with constantly unveiling more housing, more housing in very limited locations, Victoria, Vancouver, is it winds up making those cities magnet cities. And I think that's Mm. part of the problem that we really need to look at is how do we um, mandate every city to provide a basic level of services so that there isn't the desire to migrate from other locations throughout the province to Victoria, Vancouver, Nanaimo. Um, because there's a certain capacity that in, in order to provide compassionate and appropriate yeah. services. And we're, we're being overwhelmed. And I but, think there needs to be a recognition of that. Let me, let me ask you this. And I, I hear quite frequently when we discuss this topic, I will get emails, tweets, and messages from people saying, like, you're, you're poor bashing. You know, the, the people who are living in these tent cities and these encampments, um, they're human beings, too. And we talk about them like uh, very disrespectfully. This is poor bashing. I, I just don't think that's. I'm sure you've heard that too. And I just don't Absolutely. think. Absolutely, I've been called NIMBY more times than I care to count, and I am yeah. ready to print T-shirts saying NIMBY and proud at this moment. Yeah, um, but how do you respond to that? Because you know, to me, it's like the situation with these camps. They're not only unsafe for the neighborhood and the people who live near them, but they're unsafe for the people living in the camps as well which is why you're, people are looking for action. But your thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I really believe that that's not actual compassion. It's neglect. And if a loved one was experiencing a really severe health issue, you would want to get them access to treatment and care. If they no longer had the capacity to make decisions for themselves, you would hope someone else would make the decisions that need to be made so that they remain housed, so that they remain having their health care needs met. And so I, I think it's really enabling, um, parading around as compassion, but it's not genuine compassion. Genuine compassion says, what can we do to improve the situation these people face in meaningful ways? And yeah. letting them rot in parks is not that. All right, welcome back to the show. Just a quick programming note for you. Coming up uh, at the bottom of this hour, this is going to be super cool. I'm going to speak to a man named Bill Viggers. Now, this guy is an amazing individual. He's a longtime friend of Terry Fox, and he was on the Marathon of Hope with Terry Fox. He was the public relations manager for Terry during his legendary run. Uh 40 years ago, which ended 40 years ago yesterday. And we wanted to to pay some tribute to Terry Fox on the show today. 
So at the bottom of the hour, I will chat with Bill Viggers. This guy's got a million stories about being on the road with Terry Fox, longtime friend of Terry's, and I'm really looking forward to that. So if you're a fan of Terry Fox, who is not, uh, make sure you hang around for that. That's at the bottom of the hour, Bill Viggers. But first, let's talk about um, another a more serious uh, situation here that happened on the weekend, and that was the toppling of that statue of Canada's first Prime Minister, Sir John A. Macdonald, happened in Montreal over the weekend. This was a protest rally for people calling for the defunding of police. And the statue of Sir John A. Macdonald was pulled down and decapitated, in fact, when the uh, the statue was pulled over. This brought a response from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Have a listen to what Trudeau said about that. I was deeply disappointed uh, by the vandalism that took place uh, over the weekend. Uh, I understand the impatience, the frustration of Canadians who faced systemic discrimination and racism uh, throughout their lives and their concern uh, that we act quickly on that and their impatience because I myself am impatient. We need to move forward uh, quickly and the right ways on countering systemic discrimination and our government will do just that. But we are uh, a country of laws, uh, and we are a country that needs to respect uh, those laws, even as we seek to improve and change them. And that those kinds of acts of vandalism are not advancing uh, the path towards greater justice and equality in this country. All right, all right. As Trudeau, they are talking about the toppling of the statue of Sir John A. Macdonald in Montreal on the weekend. This is not the first time we've seen action against statues of the first prime minister of the country. You might recall how there was a statue of Sir John A. Macdonald outside of the city hall in Victoria, and that statue was removed by a decision of the city council because they felt that Sir John A. Macdonald was a symbol of colonial violence. A lot of people have pointed to Sir John A. Macdonald's involvement with establishing the system of residential schools for for indigenous people in canada and saying that that is a shameful episode in our country and this is why we should not celebrate him with statues boy this opens up a whole issue emotional issues around the legacy of our first prime minister so let's talk about that now my guest is uh, brian lee crowley he is the managing director of the mcdonald laurier institute i'm very pleased to welcome him hey brian hey mike it's great to be on the show with you Thanks a lot for coming on. So when you saw the statue of Sir John A. Macdonald pulled down on the weekend, what went through your mind? Here you are, the head of an an institute that bears his name. What did you think of that? Well, I I have to say I thought it was a a shameful treatment of somebody who really deserves our thoughtful thanks for the role he played in the founding of Canada. That doesn't mean that he's an angel. Uh, It means that we should look at him as a complete man, somebody who did good things. He did some things that we wouldn't do ourselves today, uh, but that were completely in keeping with the character of the country at the time. Uh, And I I, I thought there were were two issues. So there's the issue of what is the legacy of Sir John A. Macdonald. But second, uh, something that the prime minister touched on, in what I thought were some pretty limp remarks following the uh, uh, destruction of the statue. But, um, uh, you know, this is, a, this is a question of how do we as a modern society, a democracy under the rule of law, deal with controversial issues like this? And uh, the one thing I know, uh, there, there may be many ways we can deal with the, the one that we cannot accept, I think, 
is that mobs decide for themselves what shall be done and what's legal and what's acceptable and what standards should be applied. Uh, that's just not the way any democracy under the rule of law can work. Yeah, I certainly would agree with you on that. But when we talk about the, the legacy of Sir John A. Macdonald, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, here's a guy who was uh, uh, 19 years as prime minister. I, I think fair to say a, a towering figure, obviously, in the establishment of the country, uh, the national dream of a national railway, all of those things that a lot of people may have learned about in school about the first prime minister. But I guess the critics of him now looking particularly at the establishment of residential schools for Indigenous people in our country and some of the quotes from Sir Johnny MacDonald from over 130 years ago calling Native people savages and that, and that kind of thing. Where do we place that in the sort of the context of the legacy of this guy? And, and should that disqualify him from having a statue? Well, uh, those are terrific questions. So let's start with, yeah. uh, with his legacy taken sure. in the round. Yeah. Uh, you've you've talked about some of his great accomplishments, which uh, I, I think we don't uh, spend nearly enough time thinking about or appreciating. You know, taking those four colonies stretched out along the border of uh, of the United States, unloved by the colonial power in Britain, uh, with all kinds of uh, animosity and uh, rivalry between them. You know, there were customs booths at the border between the colonies. I mean, these were not. Uh, the, the the obvious raw material of a new country. And he took those unpromising materials and led a, a, a movement to force them together into uh, a functioning democracy under the rule of law, which, you know, over 150 years later uh, is, in my view, still a beacon to the rest of the world. We are still uh, a country that attracts people from all different parts of the world. Uh, in part because of the kind of society we have created here and, and the, the, the fact that, you know, so many people come here finding what we have created here to be superior to what they left. And we welcome them. And we do, we, we are right to welcome them, but we welcome them because they want to come to Canada, because Canada is better than where, they, where they've left. Can we do better? Uh, can we improve on Sir John's legacy? Absolutely. Uh, but, you know, uh, it's very important uh, that you read history in the right direction. You shouldn't read history backwards. In other words, you shouldn't start from today and say, well, if I was uh, with the values and the experiences I have today, if I was living 150 years ago, would I have approved of what Sir John A. did uh, with, say, uh, Indigenous people? Answer is no. Uh, right. Does that mean that we should... Uh, sort of dismiss Sir Johnny uh, out of hand and say, well, he's someone that we should be embarrassed about and ashamed of? I absolutely think not, because the right way to deal with history is not reading backwards, but reading forwards. So look back and say, okay, why did they do what they did? And why do we feel differently now? And, right. and what sort of progress have we made? We've learned something from history. We've learned many great things that Sir John A. Uh, did for us, including leaving us the legacy of Canada. And we've learned that uh, the kind of attitudes that he and his contemporaries had toward Aboriginal people were, 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 were not something that we share. And I happen right. to think that that's progress, not a reason to dismiss Sir John A. What do you think should be done with the, the statue now? We saw it pulled down dramatically in Montreal on the weekend. We saw Alberta Premier Jason Kenney kind of dramatically say, send the statue here, we'll take it and put it up here in Alberta. But what do you think should be done with it now? 
put back up? Well, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I really think especially given the way it was done, you know, this was not the result of some deliberate democratic process in which we made a decision about how we want to treat Sir John A. This was a, this was a mob decision, uh, which I think cannot be uh, left to stand. So I think the, the statue should be repaired. It should be replaced where it was, and we should then have a discussion about what's the appropriate way to recognize Sir John A. and his contribution to Canada, while also saying uh, we will not repeat on our watch uh, some of the things that he did in his time where values were different. All right. Yesterday was the 40th anniversary of the end of Terry Fox's inspiring and legendary Marathon of Hope. And we're going to talk about that. I've got a wonderful guest standing by, but have a listen to this first. This is a little look back at the Terry Fox story here. Maybe I won't make it, but if it's up to me, I think I can do it. Terry Fox was an 18-year-old from British Columbia when he was diagnosed with bone cancer in his right knee. Amputation and chemotherapy left him with an artificial leg and memories of those still in the cancer ward. Kids my age and younger, and, and you just can't leave something like that and, try and forget it. And, and uh, I couldn't anyway. I had to try and do something about it. And so he did. Terry trained on his new leg for 14 months, then told his family that he would run east to west across Canada, hoping to raise $1 million for cancer research. On April 12, 1980, at the easternmost point of Canada, it began, the Marathon of Hope. And Terry would do it by running 26 miles, a marathon, every single day all right we all know the story i still get kind of chills listening to it what a hero terry fox was let me introduce you now to bill vigors he was a longtime friend of terry he was a part of the marathon of hope which ended 40 years ago yesterday he was the public relations man for terry and traveled with him on the road and i'm very pleased to welcome him to this show hi bill good morning mike thank you for having me thank you for uh, uh bringing terry to your listeners it's my honor to have you here, Bill. Thank you for being here. Um, you started, I remember the story, a lot of people may know the story of your involvement with the Marathon of Hope, how you were working with the, the uh, Canadian cancer agencies, and uh, you were asked to kind of help Terry on the Marathon of Hope uh, as it began, right? And I know you joined Terry on the on the road, and you spent a lot of time with him. What was it like? Do you remember what it was like the first day you met him? What kind of impression did he make on you? Uh, the first day I actually met him in person, uh, I had flown down to New Brunswick. Uh, to find out who is this kid and what's he all about. Yeah. And um, I arrived at about 3 o'clock in the morning, slept in the back seat of my car, uh, had a cleaning bag, you know, like you get at the cleaners as a blanket, and uh, at uh, 4 o'clock in the morning, the lights come on, the door opens, and out walk the three boys. I climb out of the back seat of my car, and the first word out of Daryl Fox's mouth, uh, looking at me, said uh, incredulously, you're the guy from the Kansas Society. Uh, <laughs> okay. They were they were kind of used to people. I was 33. They were used to dealing with older people and uh, in suits and ties. And there I was. Um, we had a short visit. Um, we, you know, sat around and talked for about five minutes, and then off into the darkness. And we drove back to uh, where he had stopped the night before. And uh, Doug was driving back and forth, and you know he'd do what they were looking for was 
at the end of every day, um, at that point, they would bury a little plastic white bag so just a piece was hanging out. So Doug's job was to pull the truck up, literally, so Terry could open the van and step on that bag at that spot. He never wanted anyone to say he didn't run every step of the way. So we leave him in the darkness on the uh, Trans-Canada, which is a two-lane highway in the darkness, and we go for the first mile, and um, the first mile I'm looking in the rearview mirror, and he's coming up, and I'm silhouetted by a transport truck coming by that zooms by and roars past and shakes the van, and uh, he didn't stop that first one. And the next mile he stopped for a few minutes and did his rest, and then by about the third mile I, I said to Doug, his friend who was driving, yeah. I said, how do you watch him do this? And he and Doug said, I don't. And at first I wow. didn't know what he meant. And I realized his friend was didn't enjoy watching uh, the effort that Terry was putting in. Uh, that being said, by the way, I should say that Terry said time and time again, uh, if I wasn't running across Canada, I'd be running around the track in Port Coquitlam, so I might as well do something for somebody. Did you have any any doubt at all in your mind, Bill, when when you first met Terry and and heard about his idea to run across Canada? Did you have any doubt that he could do it? Like you heard him say, Terry say himself in that clip we just played, "I can do this. I can do it." I'm sure. I know he said the same to you. Did you think he could do it when you first met him? When um, before I met him, for some reason, I didn't think it was strange. I just, yeah, okay. And I, in, within that very first day of uh, watching him run, watching the reaction of the people, listening to him talk from the heart, yeah, uh, I immediately had no doubt, like zero. I, I was probably as crazy as he was. <laughs> that, yeah, this kid's going to make it. He's going to run across Canada on one leg. He's, gonna, he's definitely going to do it. So when I left him after two and a half days, and then spent the you know three or four weeks driving back and forth between Toronto and Ottawa to all these little towns, saying with a couple of Polaroid pictures, saying this kid's running across cancer or Canada on one leg for cancer. We had a reception, and they'd all say, "Well, if he makes it this far, yep, sure." Well, I said he's coming. So <laughs> from the beginning, I had no doubt. I never doubted, and, and even when I, have to, I will jump ahead to a question that a lot of people ask. Yeah, in Northern Ontario, he had a cold. We thought, yeah, never ever did we ever think the cancer was ever going to return because at that back then the medical community, because of the type of drug he had taken, uh, it had had affected his heart. Mm. So they were more concerned about his heart than the actual cancer returning because theoretically he had been. Uh, um, not cured, but it was uh, in remission, and yeah. the medical people didn't think there was a problem at that time. So when he had this cough in Northern Ontario, we thought it was a cold. Yeah. And so up until the very last day when he had to stop, it was a complete out-of-the-blue shock to everybody, even those closest to him. All right, welcome back. Uh, continuing my discussion with Bill Viggers about the Terry Fox Marathon of Hope. Uh, Bill was Terry's public relations manager during the Marathon of Hope, and we're talking about his memories of Terry and the Marathon of Hope, which ended 40 years ago yesterday. Uh, one of the things I think people love about Terry was he kind of wore his, wore his heart in his sleeve, Bill. You know, it was just, he just seemed so genuine, so honest, so emotional. 
and you got to know him though behind the scenes. What what was he what was he like as a guy? Like I know he had a good sense of humor, right? He had an, an incredible sense of humor, very dry sense of humor, much like his dad. Yeah. His, his, uh, his dad used to tell the same jokes over and over and over and over again. Not that Terry did, but dad was uh, very funny. Uh, people saw Terry on the road, the determination, the effort that he was putting in. Um, at the end of the day, um, he was a pleasure to be around. He enjoyed the company of kids. Uh, my kids at the time were eight and nine and traveled with us. But if wow. there were kids anywhere along the route at the end of the day, he 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 actually related to the young people uh, very well, probably a little bit better than adults. And and I think a lot of it had to do with his time in the hospital with him, which which is what motivated and which what put yeah. him in out, out on the road. Um, we uh, I, I I was heavily influenced by the uh, comedy of the Three Stooges, and uh, I it was able to introduce uh, uh, food fights to the organization. Oh, <laughs> and, but we did have one rule that you couldn't get any food on the restaurant. So if you were going to hit somebody with food, you'd actually have to either open their shirt. Uh, one incident in the Chinese restaurant where. Uh, Daryl had taken uh, the soy sauce and pulled Terry's shirt open and sprinkled the soy, soy sauce down the front of Terry. Uh, and uh, Daryl or Terry just very casually picked up jar, or the, the uh, sauce of plum sauce and opened Daryl's shorts and poured that <laughs> down Daryl's shorts. <laughs> so, oh, my goodness. Um, um, another fun thing that I remember, again, uh, this is in the Sioux and there was the entourage, and by the time we left the studio, there was a very small motel. So we were having the group of us drive back, you know, maybe 40 miles into town. Yeah. And we would leave uh, Terry and uh, Doug out at the motel. And this one incident, we get back to into town, and we can't find my eight-year-old son. Uh-oh. And I call back to the motel, and I get Doug on the phone, and I said, have you seen Patrick? And he said, yeah. Uh, Terry hit him under his bed until you guys left. They've gone fishing. <laughs> oh, oh, man, oh, man. <laughs> so oh. Um, he was, uh, I, I, uh, uh, he would get mad at yeah. us, but it was because we weren't doing our job. Right. Um, and as quickly as he would get upset, it would be, we would be laughing two minutes later. Would so, he ever get get a little down sometimes i mean like doing a marathon 26 miles a day and you can just sort of see the exertion on his face in the in the videos like he must have had some some tough days too didn't he you know the problem we had and it happened on on a few occasions where he he didn't doesn't sleep the night before so you remember he's running a marathon every day so when we you know you you decided on his mood, um, particularly early in the morning. Um, if he didn't want to talk, we didn't talk. And quite often, he would just get up and go out into the van and lay on the bed and wrap himself in the sleeping bag, um, probably wishing he was going someplace else or doing something else. But back out on the road every day, uh, the commitment of going there Um as far as discouraged, he was discouraged initially because he wasn't getting the reaction or the support. Yeah. But 
uh, once the crowds started and the reception people and they become aware of what he was doing, um, that drove him. Yeah. Now that led to what happened was is a little bit of a, 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 by the time we get into this north of Toronto, he's now concerned that people have put him up on a pedestal and made him a hero and aren't remembering or focusing on why he was doing it. So there was some concern there, even to the point, and if we have time, I, I got a quick story about the actual sure, we got, we got We got a couple of minutes. Okay, well, very quickly, I'm going to talk about the, everybody knows the speech that uh, Terry made uh, on the gurney, uh, announcing he had to stop his run. Yes. Well, following that, we, we loaded him into the ambulance along with uh, a, a doctor uh, who was going to accompany him home and mom and dad and myself and Christy Blatchford, who was a reporter for The Sun, wow. and or The Star, rather. And we're driving to the, uh, the airport, and, uh, of course, mom and dad are sitting at the top of his head and, needless to say, very, very upset. And dad said a couple of times, this is so unfair. This is so unfair that the cancer's come back. And Terry very calmly said, no, Dad, it's, it's not, not unfair. He said, I'm no different than anybody else. This is what cancer is all about. Um, and I'm just like everybody else. And then there was a long pause, and he said, maybe now people will understand why I did it. Wow. And that's at that point he was concerned that he was a hero and he knew that now he was going to go home and have to go through the chemotherapy and the radiation and that Canada would follow him on his fight with the disease. And I think that whole short interchange exchange bespeaks of Terry completely. Yeah, um, I mean, boy, that's his, no, yeah. that's his courage right there. And you know what, Bill? I'm so grateful that you're able to spend some time with us here today, the day after the 40th anniversary of that day that you just described. And what a great hero he is. And it was a sad end to the Marathon of Hope. But, man, the legacy and the hope that he left behind, and we can celebrate it forever now. Bill, thank you very much for your time and coming on today. Very quickly, i got to say, this year is a virtual run. We need yeah. the publics. We need everybody's support. Terry ran through everything. Make COVID the reason you actually do something this year. And thank you, Mike, for, for keeping Terry it was Fox my, alive. It was my pleasure, Bill. That's Bill Vigors and his memories of the Marathon of Hope. He was Terry's uh, public relations manager on the Marathon of Hope.